0: Welcome to Done and Done, Friends. My name is Alicia, and I'm your hostess on this journey of all things Dominic Dunn. Thank you, thank you for your terrific and overwhelming response to the first episode. It means the world. And to show my appreciation today to you, I'm giving y'all a little extra something back for the sweet Valentine you gave to me. It's a bonus, done and done, y'all. A little extra, extra. Today, we're going to focus on the history of the feud of Dominic Dunn and Frank Sinatra, which will lead us by the end of the episode to the Daisy, LA's first dinner club discotheque and the scene of all kinds of Hollywood history. Let's investigate. In episode one, we talked about Dominic's first act. Much of that made in Hollywood with the wonderful times and the rotten times, too. The intersection of this period in his life certainly does have ups and downs. One of those downs famously involving Frank Sinatra paying the maitre d' of the daisy to punch Dominic Dunn in the face. How do we get to that night in September 1966? Dominic Dunn originally meets Frank Sinatra when Nick is working behind the scenes on an adaptation of Thornton Wilder's Our Town for this television series called Producers Showcase. This is TV in 1955. Paul Newman and Eva Marie Saint are cast as the teenagers who will fall in love. The showcase is the precipice of both of these stars breaking out in their careers. Frank Sinatra is cast in the production in the role of stage manager. This producer showcase is directed by Delbert Mann, who Dominic Dunn will describe as a gentle, wonderful man. Dominic will continue. And Frank Sinatra was surrounded by, uh, those certain types of guys. The poor director, Delbert Mann, wants to give Frank Sinatra notes after the run-through about stage direction and such. No criticism, just, this is the cost of doing business in live television. All of Frank's guys block any notes from actually getting to Sinatra. Just tell us, they say. There are unpleasant exchanges. Please forgive poor Delbert Mann for trying to plan a live 90-minute television program. Frank Sinatra doesn't even attend the dress rehearsal. The production has to use a stand-in. But sure enough, one take Frank Sinatra comes in and delivers a perfect performance. Dominic believes this is when Frank Sinatra took a great dislike to him. Dominic, for his part, has never seen a star behave like this and was disgusted by it. 1957 does roll around, and there is that infamous party Dominic attends, hosted by Humphrey Bogart, where Sinatra's singing... There's nothing so uncomfortable here that Dominic hesitates waking Lenny up on the East Coast to announce that the whole family will be moving to Hollywood. On the other side, for Frank in 1957, this year has found him with a finalized divorce from Ava Gardner. The romance between the crooner and his angel eyes goes south for a lot of reasons, one of those reasons being the affair that Ava Gardner has with John Farrow while John Farrow is married to Marino Sullivan. John Farrow and Marino Sullivan are parents of Frank's future next wife, Mia Farrow, who is a child when all of this is happening in the mid 1950s. But alas, after the marriage with Ava Gardner busts, Frank will date a lot. After Bogart's death, he will date Lauren Bacall. He will date Angie Dickinson. He will date Marilyn Monroe. Juliet Prowse is certain that there is a proposal on the way. No luck, Juliet. Frank Sinatra will not be her Romeo. Old Blue Eyes is playing the field and has a pretty good time just franking it up through the late 1950s and early 1960s. Now, once the Duns land in California, Dominic and Frank are running in the same circles. A little back history here. Nick and Lenny do attend the wedding of Robert F. Kennedy and Ethel Skakel back in 1953. They are social friends with the couple. Robert Kennedy is the brother of Patricia Kennedy, who is married to Peter Lawford. The Kennedy Lawfords are living right on the beach, super close to the Dunns upon their arrival in Hollywood, before the Dunns moved to that home on Walden Drive. Connections everywhere. Through the early 60s, Frank and Nick moving in the same circles, and with the campaign and election of John F. Kennedy as the president in 1960, Frank will rekindle the friendship with Peter Lawford to really ride out those political connections that Peter Lawford can provide to Frank. Sometime around this time in the early 1960s, Frank takes a great dislike to both Nick and Lenny. One moment Nick and Lenny are in the circle, and the next they are out. Dominic becomes an object of abuse from Frank Sinatra. Maybe Frank hears the gay whispers. Maybe he remembers the undelivered notes from our town. Dominic never knows why, but Frank will taunt him at parties. You're a no-talent hack. When Frank Sinatra sees Lenny done socially, Frank will tell her over and over that she married a loser. Tension is already brewing in the early 1960s between these two. Now that we've set the scene for Frank and Dominic, I want to tell you about another thing that happens in the early 1960s in Hollywood. Since Hollywood has been a Hollywood, the beginning of it, there's always been a hot spot. There's always been a place that has the buzz, the cool people, the press. And with the dawning of the 1960s, the hotspots of yesterday, like Ciro's, the Macambo, the Trocadero, are fading into the past. And a new kind of club is taken over with the cool kids. It's mod, it's hip, it's groovy. It's the young of Hollywood that's leaving that dusty old past behind. In 1953, it was the Luau, opened by Stephen Crane, famously the husband of Lana Turner, That cachet didn't hurt the luau at all in the 1950s, neither did the very strong tiki cocktails. But by 1961, the times they are a-changin' and a newer, hipper place is about to add its influence into Hollywood. Welcome to the Daisy. The Daisy is located at 326 North Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills, right next door to 330 North Rodeo Drive, which is a Frank Lloyd Wright designed building. The Daisy actually begins as a private home in 1941 until restaurateur Michael Romanoff launches his brainchild of Romanoff's, which will become legendary in the Hollywood scene in 1943. This private home is renovated and Romanoff's becomes a big deal nightclub. All the stars are there. Name them, they're there. In 1951, Romanoff's will move to a new location just a few blocks away and that North Rodeo Drive site will serve as a friars club for a few years. By the dawning of the 1960s, the friars are out and welcome to the launch of the Daisy, which will open in 1962 L.A.'s first members-only private discotheque. This place is exclusive, friends. Jack Hansen and his wife Sally have run a boutique clothing shop named Jack's, J-A-X. And Jack's outfits all the lady stars. The big seller at Jack's <laughs> are an item of clothing called Jack Slacks which are tight, skinny pants that zip up the back, and Jack slacks do a pretty adequate job of showing off the rear view of every lady in Hollywood. Jack slacks are hot, hot, hot. The Jack's Boutique will dress Audrey Hepburn, Marlena Daytrick, Jacqueline Kennedy, Barbara Streisand, among countless others, Twiggy, Diana Ross too. Marilyn Monroe is one of Jack Hansen's best customers when he opens the shop. The sales girls at Jack's? Always interesting, too. In time, they will include Frank Sinatra's daughters, Nancy and Tina, along with Dean Martin's daughters as well, Dina, Gina, and Claudia. So Jack Hansen, Jack's slacks are doing pretty well. He gets this other brainchild of an idea, which is really easy for Jack to sell as he's fitting the Jack slacks onto the Lady Stars. What's this big idea? Why? It's a private club just for you and your friends. Membership is limited to 400 people, and the cost of this exclusivity is $250 a year. From opening night, the Daisy is packed. It is a country club just right there on Rodeo Drive. Not only are Nick and Lenny members, but all of their friends are too. Warren Beatty, Julie Christie, Richard Conte, Tony Curtis, Sammy Davis Jr., Angie Dickinson, John Derrick, Linda Evans, Mia Farrow, Grace Kelly, Steve McQueen, Paul Newman, Robert Redford, Sonny and Cher, Jay Sebring, Sharon Tate, Omar Sharif, Peter Sellers, Natalie Wood. If you're up and coming in Hollywood, you gotta be a member of the Daisy. Dining is available where the menu items are named after the club's famous members as well as legendary Hollywood stars. A Jaja zha Princess will get you a boneless chicken breast with mustard for 15 bucks. A Warren Beatty, otherwise known as a grilled cheese sandwich, will run you $12. In addition to the specialty menu at the Daisy, there is dancing, there are cocktails, there are pool tables. The Daisy is where it is all happening. Its members are having a marvelous time in their exclusive club. What you need to know is the Daisy is a big deal with a very limited group of people that are all interconnected in Hollywood. For the younger mover and shaker crowd, it is the best and most exclusive clubhouse in L.A. Back to our timeline. Let's move to 1964. This year, we'll bring the meeting of the 19-year-old Mia Farrow and Frank Sinatra on the Fox Lot. There is an invitation to Mia from Frank to his home in Palm Springs. Mia says she has to bring her cat, Malcolm, the cat, sweet, deaf, baby, fluffy, white cat who only eats baby food, gets a leash around his neck, and off Malcolm and Mia go on to Frank's private plane, and the May-December romance is on. Frank is 30 years Mia's senior, and she is younger than his children, but alas, The heart wants what the heart wants. These two lovebirds, Mia and Frank, are super quiet about their affair for a whole year until they are busted when Frank's friends are taking a very drunk Frank home after his 50th surprise birthday party that naturally Mia Farrow does not attend because no one knows they are a couple. Upon those kind of certain guys bringing drunk Frank into the home, There's Mia, there's Malcolm, the secret is out. Frank Sinatra is going to get a lot of rough and guff from everyone in his circle, as well as the world in general for robbing the cradle. Dean Martin, member of the infamous Rat Pack, will rib Frank. I have bottles of scotch older than her. Comedian Jackie Mason makes this May-December thing part of his act with jokes like, Frank soaks his dentures and Mia brushes her braces. Going on. Then she takes off her roller skates and puts them next to his cane. Oh, Jackie Mason. He continues. He peels off his toupee and she braids her hair. Frank is, how would you say, sensitive to these jokes. After Jackie Mason's act premieres, there is a phone call the next day that Jackie Mason receives where an anonymous caller, helpfully, will tell Jackie that if he values his life, he should consider changing his material. Jackie Mason does not change his material, and the following day, three shots are fired through the glass door of his hotel room in Las Vegas. The police do not pursue an investigation. Jackie Mason will go on to say, quote, I knew that Sinatra owned Las Vegas when the detectives there made me the prime suspect and asked that I take a lie detector test. I have no idea who it was who tried to shoot me. After the shots were fired, all I heard was someone singing, Doobie Doobie Doo. Over the following year, Jackie Mason will have his nose and cheekbones broken as well. Jackie Mason, though, never really is silenced. He will make the abuse from Sinatra part of his act going on to say in his shows quote I love Frank Sinatra you love Frank Sinatra we all love Frank Sinatra why do we love Frank Sinatra because he'd kill us if we didn't as you can see Frank is already known for his legendary temper it is nothing for the dude to get into fights nothing for him to recruit friends to fight with him Frank Sinatra is really his very own fight club. I need you to know that. Don Rickles, another famous comedian, will once greet Frank when he walks into a lounge by saying, Make yourself comfortable, Frank. Hit somebody. Mia Farrow will break up with Frank early in their relationship for an incident where Frank Sinatra drives a golf cart into an actual Las Vegas hotel. There are some clear warning signs about Frank's temper. There has already been an incident before Frank and Nick have their fated night at the Daisy in September of 1966. This one occurs at a place called the Bistro. There is a party given in 1965 by famous Hollywood agent Swifty Lazar, who is a whole episode all on his own. Old Swifty is throwing a launch party for the book by Dominique LaPierre and Larry Collins for Is Paris Burning? Frank and Mia are there, along with Mia's mother, Maureen O'Sullivan. Frank and Maureen, at this night in the bistro, are in an argument. Dominic Dunn and his wife, Lenny, walk in and just keep moving past this fracas. They want to be seated at their table, which is right next door to Frank Sinatra's party. But during dinner, Frank will extend the fight from his table over to Nick and Lenny's table, and Frank begins a fight with Lenny. Same stuff as he's been saying to her for years, you married a total loser. He continues, Lauren Bacall attempts to calm Frank Sinatra down. Swifty Lazar steps in to try to simmer down the situation which garners Frank's response of pulling the tablecloth out in a very dramatic move, then throwing a plate full of food onto Swifty Lazar. Frank grabs Mia Farrow, stomps out of the bistro. Another well-documented piece of Frank's temper will be written by Gay Talese in Esquire magazine. Occurs on a particular night in late 1965, early 1966 at the Daisy, where Frank Sinatra will get into a fight with writer Harlan Ellison over Harlan Ellison's boots, also his lack of jacket and a tie while playing pool at the Daisy. In addition to the incident at the Bistro and in the pool room of the Daisy, there's one more that happens at the Polo Lounge of the Beverly Hills Hotel in June of 1966. There is a businessman named Frank Weissman, who will ask Frank Sinatra if he and his party just wouldn't mind being a little quieter. Weissman will end the night in a hospital in a coma. None of this escalating behavior slows down the course of love, though. Mia Farrow and Frank Sinatra are married July sixteenth, 1966, in Las Vegas. Quick and easy, no fuss, no muss, which takes us to the daisy. Moving ahead just a few months to September 1966, Dominic is there with Lenny and a small group of friends. By chance, at the next table, similar to the situation the year before at the bistro, Frank Sinatra is sitting at the next table with his new wife, Mia Farrow, and his two daughters, Nancy and Tina. Volatile Frank out looking for a fight sees an opportunity. But this night, it is not Frank Sinatra that does the punching. There is a tap on Dominic's shoulder, and it is the maitre d' of the daisy, a very nice fellow called George. Dominic says, Italian, we all knew him. We gave him Christmas presents. Wonderful man. George will say to Dominic Dunn, quote, Oh, Mr. Dunn, I'm so sorry about this, but Mr. Sinatra made me do it. George leans back, clenches his fist and hits. Dunn in the face. Dunn says it wasn't a hit to knock me out, but it was embarrassing. A silence falls over the crowd at the Daisy. Forks drop. Pool balls stop knocking around. Dominic Dunn will look across at Frank Sinatra, who is staring back at Nick with a satisfied smile on his face. Nick and Lenny leave the Daisy, and while they are waiting for their car, George, the maitre d' runs out, crying, sobbing, and afraid. I'm sorry, so sorry, Mr. Sinatra made me do it. George is crying to Dominic. He goes on to say that Sinatra tipped him $50. Dominic says it was the social talk of the town. I was the amusement for Sinatra. My humiliation was his fun. Dominic will never forgive Frank for his behavior that night. Going on to say, it showed the kind of power Sinatra had, to make a decent man do an indecent act. As you know, I am aware totally that his voice is one of the great voices of the era, if not the greatest. And to this day, I can't stand the sound of it. No love between these two, and quite frankly, Dominic, I get it. Little speculation here on my part, as we connect these uh daisy dots from the fall of nineteen sixty six back to that copycat Truman Capote black and white ball held in November of the same year, and maybe just maybe why the duns were not invited. See Truman Capote spends a whole year toting around this black and white composition book, making his guest list for this party of the century for months. Writing names, crossing names off, adding names back on. This guest list becomes an obsession for Truman throughout 1966. The maitre d' Daisy Punch-Out! occurs in September of 66. Truman's guest list is finalized in October for invitations to be sent to those lucky 500-plus included in on Truman's secret list. Like, y'all, he sleeps with this notebook, friends. If I was a speculating, betting sort of gal, my money is on Truman Capote crossing the Duns off that list and keeping Frank and Mia on it. The just-married Frank and Mia have a whole lot more cachet at the time, and if the word of the punch-out did get to Truman, which it was pretty big news at the time in their set, maybe Truman doesn't want to have that kind of scene playing out at his big gala affair. Quite possibly, Truman Capote may have picked the wrong couple to attend his ball with where he landed on the side of the argument. But in Truman's estimation, I can imagine Frank and Mia would have been a way more powerful draw when it comes to star power and press coverage than a Hollywood producer and his wife. Speculation. That's all. This is where I'm going to leave Frank and Nick. But there are a few more stories to tell about the Daisy before we close out of this episode. A whole lot more happens at the Daisy and to the Daisy as the decade wears on. The following year, in 1967, Jill St. John and Jack Jones will be spotted canoodling around. 1968 will bring the meeting of an up-and-coming Aaron Spelling to his future wife, Carol Jean. You may know her as Candy. Both Aaron and Candy are there on dates with other people, but the couple do dance that night to the song "My Funny Valentine," which they will adopt as their song. August of 1969 does bring much tragedy to the LA scene with the murders of Sharon Tate, Jay Sebring, Abigail Folgers, Strakowski, and Stephen Parent. Sharon and Jay are members of the Daisy. They're friends with Nick and Lenny. Not only does this crime shock the nation, it virtually stuns this community. These murders happen August 9th, so you may have missed the news from the Daisy two days later, August 11th, 1969, where Diana Ross will be hosting an exclusive event at the Daisy where everyone in town is welcome to come and meet Motown's newest act, a little group called the Jackson Five. This event will last from 6.30 to 9.30 at night and Barry Gordy will attend and predict the success of the Jackson 5. Sure enough, their first three singles will all hit number one on the charts, and the Jackson 5 will go on to become one of the biggest selling acts in the 1970s. At this party, Michael Jackson is two weeks shy of his 11th birthday, but is told to tell reporters that he is eight. Michael does, and the legend of the Jackson 5 is born at the Daisy. In 1970, the Daisy's rebranded, and Jack Hansen steps away for a time. It's still a spot where things are happening, though. In 1974, Mel Brooks will host the cast party for his film Young Frankenstein. The popular television game show at the time, The Dating Game, will even promote a date at the Daisy as a prize on its show where the lucky couple can go. Although typically it's just the producers and the girl from the dating game going, the date actually may or may not be invited. Still always a fun time at the Daisy. Even James Garner's character in the Rockford Files will reference the Daisy in a line from the television program. It is that ubiquitous to the culture. Again, the Daisy will close in the early 70s, but not close. It gets rebranded for a bit. Jack Hansen does step away from day-to-day management. The club will be rebranded into a healthy things gathering for a hot minute. It will become a Christian club in the mid-1970s, but problematically, there is no dancing allowed or alcohol served, so this iteration lasts less than a year. By 1977, Jack Hansen is back in charge of the daisy with a rebranded menu and a whole new group of clientele. Initiation fees, cost of inflation, you know, have gone up now to $500, but people are still joining up. Membership is full. The Daisy is back in business. One of those members of the reopened Daisy at this time in 1977 is the 30-year-old, very much married and almost ready-to-retire professional football player O.J. Simpson, who attends that night with his friends Robert Kardashian and his girlfriend Chris for a fun night. And who is there but a fresh-faced, just out of high school, 18-year-old Nicole Brown, working her very first waitress shift in the newly reopened Daisy. Dominic Dunn will cover the fallout from this prophetic meeting at the Daisy in detail through the course of his career. Jack Hansen also is going to put together a celebrity softball team out of the Daisy, which includes stars like Peter Falk. Bobby Darren, Ryan O'Neill, and Aaron Spelling, among others. The cheerleaders for the Daisy Celebrity Softball Team include Suzanne Plouchette and Nancy Sinatra. The Daisy is going to make a big time film appearance in 1980, this time in Richard Gere's breakout role in American Gigolo. But even that cannot save the second iteration of The Daisy. It is done, and done, by the mid 1980s when the building is demolished to clear room for a new retail center, which is where you will still find luxury shops standing today in the place of the daisy on North Rodeo Drive. Nothing remaining of the legendary hotspot that impacted so much of the scene in Hollywood in the 1960s and 1970s. Friends, thanks so much for listening and sharing your time with me today. Join us next Monday for another regular true crime-focused episode of Done and Done. We'll be talking about Dominic's second act, becoming a writer, the tragic murder of his daughter Dominique. Until we meet then, wishing you the very best of weeks, friends. Ah, mm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after, rare, and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done Podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com.